It is Friday, March 18th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to our third installment of Best Ball Friday. I'm your host, Matt Schauf, and with me today, another terrific guest to help us sharpen our best ball drafting toolkits. He is a best ball analyst for Establish the Run. He is the 2020 champion of Underdog's Best Ball Mania Tournament. He is Justin Herzig on Twitter because in real life, that's who he is, Justin Herzig. Justin, thank you very much for joining me today. Cheers, Matt. It's great to be here. Always fun to uh, spend a Friday doing either some drafting, some talking, anything best ball related. Yeah, I appreciate you not only pulling yourself away from some best ball drafts, although they, they're probably running in the background as we talk here. But I mean, NCAA tournament, I saw you even giving out some free bracket advice just before the tournament started. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you look closely, you would have seen that my uh, the data kind of suggests you should use Kentucky to win it all. So that went out well. My 13-year-old daughter filled out a bracket for the first time, mostly stuck with favorites, but Kentucky was like the one non-number one seed that she had in the Final Four, and I was just explaining to her two days ago when I asked her about it. I was like, I can still remember when I was around your age, and I had Syracuse going from the two spot into the Final Four, and they lost to Richmond, and I had Arizona going to the Final Four, and they lost to Santa Clara, so... Get ready for it, kid. She was feeling great after her first couple of teams won. And then last night, uh, that happened right after she went to bed this morning. I'm like, welcome to bracket life, kid. You should break it down. Make her tell her she can take solace in the fact that she actually chose a very high leverage, you know, high expected value strategy. And she'll, that, that'll help her sleep at night. Yeah, it should be like, whatever. <laughs> what does leverage mean? <laughs> I just wanted a cat. And Kentucky has the cats. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't remember doing that. So we'll move on from life with 13-year-old girls because that's a whole other series of podcasts. We'll get back to best ball talk because that's what I'm imagining people are here to listen to today. Now, Justin, you said recently on Twitter, of course, that the Superflex tournament on Underdog right now, which is you know at the, at the center of the Underdog best ball focus right now. So you said that reminds you a lot of the good old days of 2019. So first of all, tell me about those good old days and what has changed to the nowadays. Yeah. I mean, best ball is still a fairly new concept. And yeah, you had some of kind of the peripheral websites, some of the smaller, the MFL tens and stuff that, um, you know, you, you got a little feel for it, but it really wasn't until kind of the, the website draft, which was the pre, um, precursor to underdog that made it just very easy, simple. I could be doing it on my phone. I think that's, uh, was at least when I first really started getting into it, but you also didn't have the amount of data. You didn't have the amount of people who were giving, you know, kind of analytic strategy, talking through roster construction, all of that. And so in the early days, a lot of it was really around like, hey, using intuition and uh, thinking through like this strategy makes sense. And maybe you had small pieces of data or something or last year's results or something. But at the end of the day, like it wasn't to the point of it is now. And even now it is still, still very, very new. But when we see this super flex, like I think, it's so interesting to see people have such strong convictions, strong opinions on it, but still at the end of the day, we're all learning on this. And I think why I enjoy it so much is that I can kind of, I don't know, just take a, take a step and actually start thinking about like, Hey, how do you really beat this new game? And uh, where I've had, I don't know where I think I've enjoyed the most and where I've had the most success in the past is taking on new games that are, you know, primarily football related, but you look at second half NFL showdown or when the XFL came out, like 
those were areas where you couldn't just go and, you know, use the work that people have already done, but using your own actual process, uh, I think is a bit more valuable. And I don't know, I just also it's more intrigued and interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you play fantasy, if you played fantasy for a while, and if you came to it as fantasy, as opposed to like, you know, as a data person and like, oh, I found these numbers. So now I'm going to play this game because I found this way to play it. I think if you came to fantasy as a fantasy player, you have to like a format that forces everybody to feel their way through it and, and try to figure out what works. But what have you found, I guess, specifically for this format, how did you attack this one? And maybe in general, how do you go about beginning to attack a new format that arises? Yeah. So specifically for Superflex, uh, I kind of just started thinking about like, okay, what do I need to actually win this game? And uh, then I think about, okay, where are their potential edges? And so for this example, um, well, the rankings for when it starts off are pretty comparable to what the rankings were for the, you know, the just normal traditional one. And like, yes, the QB is very quickly adapted, but things like the wide receivers are still very comparable to where they stand in relation to running backs in this, even though you have one fewer wide receiver that's necessary. And so that's something where, you know, maybe there's opportunity like, hey, if we're drafting a, you know, three, four wide receivers in the first round or maybe comparable before we're drafting the sixth, seventh, eighth running back in traditional, if you need one fewer wide receiver, shouldn't those maybe start dropping down? And so just trying to think about like how throughout the draft room this starts playing. And then the second is like around like those quarterbacks aspects, how many quarterbacks should you actually have? And so I know I'm just thinking about like when I think about the strategies that I like for traditional, you want maybe four running backs. I'm a you know, bit on the hyper fragile, uh, maybe five running backs, but you're still looking at about, okay, maybe two X the amount of positions that you can actually start. And with wide receivers, you can start three or four. And you're still happy to get anywhere between seven, eight, nine, maybe even 10. And so now you're looking at, okay, two to two and a half. Now quarterbacks, I'm now likely going to try to be playing two quarterbacks every week. Yes, that super flex spot can be filled with another position. But when it is half PPR scoring, I'm looking for that most likely to be a quarterback. So how many quarterbacks should I be going for? Well, four feels right, even though four feels like a lot of quarterbacks for what used to be a onesie position. And there's some worlds where you might actually want five, depending on the quality. And I don't think having two and a half X of what you can start for that position is too much when that's comparable to what we've done elsewhere. Sometimes you even go with the tight ends, you grab three or something. And so is that right? I'm not sure, but that's the way I kind of just think through about like, okay, what should my construction really look like here? How do I build that? And then it's looking at the ADPs to say, okay, where are people maybe overdrafting to reach somewhere when I'm thinking about the larger structure of my team? Yeah. And I mean, that's where it's it's fun to think through because you don't have the answer. You can't say, well, this is what won the tournament last year. You can kind of logic your way through it, but you know, we'll see what actually works this year. It sounds like you have landed primarily on four quarterbacks, maybe something in the the five to six running back range. Is that your primary roster construction for the super flex tournament? And obviously, you know, the, the wide receivers and tight ends to follow. Yeah, I mean, it obviously differs um, on a per draft basis. But in general, I would say I'm leaving most draft rooms with about four QBs. Um, mm-hmm. The only time I'm doing three is if I'm pretty much starting QB, QB. And when I'm starting QB, QB, that second round QB, I usually feel is a bit of a stretch compared to what else is out there. At this time, I'm willing to be uh, a bit more, you know, take risks and willing to take chances. So like Tom Brady was one where... You were drafting him with ADPs of like 170 and more likely he was not going to return and it was going to be a boss. But now that he is starting, he's turned into a second round QB, if not end of the first round QB. Like that 
opportunity we always knew was there. And that's where there's opportunity to take risk. And so Premier, I don't, I think I didn't have a ton of him, but I had around probably 12%. And on those teams though, it was building for, okay, I'm going to go stud, stud, stud everywhere else and go with a four or five QB build and hope that either Malik Willis, Tom Brady, maybe even Desmond Ritter, like these guys who have the upside if they find their way into the starting position and play for that. So Overall, I would say, yeah, I'm mostly trying to go for those four QBs. Running backs, um, I've been going a bit heavier on the running backs early on just because we see that they are dropping. And again, you only need two wide receivers. So ideally, I'm starting two, three run. I mean, I'm starting three running backs every week because the guys that in traditional would be going kind of early third end of the second are now going like fifth or sixth round. Um, Have you and, found that they're falling beyond where you think they should, even outside of Superflex in the one quarterback format? Because that's the way it seemed to me in these early drafts. Yeah, and I think it has to do with roster controls. Like Ezekiel Elliott is the guy that always, I don't know, comes around with my name a lot because I think he is one of the unique plays where the data suggests that Zeke is not a good person to be on your best ball team. Because even when he played every game, he still averages 15 points per game. It's the old quote of if you draft Zeke, you are paying to know who your RB2 is rather than, you know, I don't forget the rest of it, but like, or what points you're going to get, because you can get those points elsewhere. But for me, with a guy like drafting Zeke, it allows me to say, okay, I'm going to only now draft three or four, and I'm going to make up at the other position and excel at those others. Because yes, it does not make sense to draft someone like Zeke, who at his current state, we don't think he has the upside or whatever, but then you're also wasting another four or five positions for that. If you are only drafting four running backs, I think Zeke is a great compliment, especially now his ADP and Superflex is something like 67, I think, for the starting running back on a high-powered offense that probably going to catch more passes as well with what we've seen with that offense. And it's so like, that's an example where I think as long as you're building your strategy around, he can still be a core component and getting drafted in the seventh round of super flex, or I think it was starting to go like fifth round of traditional is just too much value for me. Oh yeah. He might have to play defensive end for them this year too, the way free agency is going. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a good example because obviously you look at him and he is a deteriorating player at this point, but if you're drafting him in round five and you're drafting him for a Cowboys team that clearly believes he can still play and is saying publicly, Oh, he was hurt last year. You know, Zeke's still our guy. All he needs opportunity. That's the, the king here. Tom Brady killed me because I could understand, you know, if you take him late and he comes back, it's a huge value. But for, I just couldn't I couldn't get past the idea that he's always so packaged. I was I was sure that if he chose to announce his retirement, that it was for real and he was retiring. I honestly I, I at this point, I'm like, how could you not just take a few chances that he would miss it. I'm kicking myself. I'm glad that there was one super flex draft where my turn came up slow draft and the two people who picked in front of me did not take him for whatever reason. I was like, Oh, thank God I have one share. So at least this is my, this is the team I'm going to be shining a light on and watching all season. Yeah. And I mean, then the question becomes, okay, so if not him, who next and how else, what, what can we learn from that example that maybe profit off? Maybe you could have gone with the Deshaun Watson. For me, honestly, his price was still too high, even with all the you know un- lack of clarity. He was still being drafted in like the third, fourth round of Superflex. So I didn't get much Deshaun because I just think the price, like the upside, was already uh, risk was already baked in. The price was already baked in, so like you weren't getting substantial value there. But for me, like Malik Willis is an example where I think he's my number one owned quarterback, and I have him on I think like over thirty percent of teams. 
because yeah, there's a decent chance he gets drafted by Carolina at what that sixth spot ends up having to sit for the entire year and it ends up being a boss and that team's not going to be great. But if he does actually start, you know, play and starting, like he's a guy who's going to be averaging more than 20 points per game. And when you're comparing that to the other QBs that are around him, that's the upside that I'm playing for. And yes, it takes a bit more of a risk tolerance. And yeah, you can say, well, if you draft more then you're willing to take that, but uh, that, that's at least for my strategy is how can I, where, where can I take risks on guys there? If the situation works out well, they can win a league for me. Yeah. I can certainly understand the case for Willis. I, I, I'm drafting for some volume, but I'm not a max level drafter. So I've been leaning away from Malik Willis and instead kind of favoring the other rookie quarterbacks, Sam Howell, Desmond Ritter, who are going later, who have the experience edge in college, who, if they land in the right spot, could start this year. But, you know, they also, to me, there's less risk because I'm taking them later and not taking them ahead of guys like Baker Mayfield, who a couple weeks ago I thought was sure to be a starter for somebody. I guess we'll see where he lands. So I I guess my question from that is, do you kind of agree with that sort of difference for a different sort of best ball player, the person who's not maxing out their exposure and then needs to find some different edges in there? Yeah, I mean, if you're drafting for fun, you draft for fun and just have fun with the app. It is what it is, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if I'm going to go enter the Millie maker, um, you know, normal DFS and competing against 300,000 other lineups. And even if I'm only entering one lineup or two lineups, I'm still going to build that lineup with a level of contrarian. I'm still going to build that lineup that has that ability to create, you know, that is the highest EV lineup possible that has a chance at winning it. And I think best ball is the same way. If I'm only going to do one, five, 10 drafts, I should still be drafting using the edge, using the contrarian, using the risk profile for hoping that I can get there. Now, if your goal is just to kind of double your money and you want to play it safe, you should probably not be playing these big tournaments because so much of the money is in that high upside prize pool. And uh, it's why last year um, I ended up not taking it down, but I was sitting in first for the DK for the Milli for a while and ended up finishing fourth. And that was all because I invested heavily in that Kansas City Cincinnati game. Like even all the way down to my last pick was probably Daryl Williams and he had a big game there. But the goal was, I want to optimize teams that have a chance at winning that major prize pool. And because as DraftKings, as underdogs, as these other sites are trying to create these larger prize pools that have first up, you know, a lot to first, and there's going to be continued like proliferation of, okay, who has that highest first place prize? Even if you're only drafting one, five, 10 best ball, you should still be trying to optimize for how you can give yourself a legitimate shot at winning that first place. Now, kind of pulling away from Superflex, because you know, most of these are still going to not be Superflex, even though that's that's in the, the spotlight right now. How have the optimal roster builds fared year to year? The you know, is last year's top performing builds, are you finding that they they are carrying over to next year's results? I know you said we're still early in this, so we're probably still working in small samples, but how sticky is the roster construction just in terms of, you know, numbers at each position year to year? Yeah, I think the tails, when I say tails, I mean the lineups, the constructions that were not used that often, their success um, kind of varies a bit more than the rest. So for example, I would have thought two years ago, like the Travis Kelsey with just one tight end team would have been very successful because of the huge year he had. It ended up not being that way. But if you look into the data to understand why that was, it was because if you were drafting Kelsey, you also were not drafting whoever the stud was that, um, that you know blew up that year. I guess it was Derek Henry. I'm trying to think who was number one overall. But um, 
same idea with like if you have those very high win rates. And so, so much of like the win rate data and the uh, success data is based off where those players were drafted. If one of the first, if a guy in the first or second round ended up blowing up. So what I'm using to say this is it helps as we get more year over year data. But I think at the end of the day, like your roster construction has to make sense. And that's where like the hyper fragile when I was drafting that two years ago was doing it because I felt this made sense. I wanted to hit on those running backs. And if they did hit, then I could find, you know, plug holes with depth and all the other positions. But last year, what we started realizing is that the wide receivers all started getting steamed. So, so many more wide receivers were being drafted in those eighth, ninth, 10th round as people just kind of stacked up, stacked up as more people you went for a hyper fragile build. Last year, my predominant build ended up being five running backs. And again, this is 18 person team. So it's going to be different this year with 20, but realizing that when I was doing four running backs, I wasn't drafting what was an example of Tony Pollard in the 10th or James White in the 10th because it was a little too much cost. Last year, those same guys, the Alexander Madison and such, they were getting pushed back to like the 14th, 15th round. And now I'm like, okay, because all the wide receivers are getting pushed up, it now makes more sense for me to add in that additional running back to go with the five running back build. Mm -hmm. So if I know I'm going to take more chances on that, I'm probably now going to not take my second or third running back as early. And so just learning from where the kind of drafts form to how I'm going to adapt my strategy early on, not just at the end of the draft with that five running back. And this year, I think like I have my same idea for how I think, you know, you can play to win with roster construction, but how others are drafting and where the kind of tide goes is how you'll have to kind of adapt. And I think with now everyone going with the 20 or at least the two core sites I play DraftKings and underdog going with 20 roster spots. It'll be interesting to see how that uh, changes things a bit, primarily at the QB and tight end position. Yeah. How have you seen it change so far with underdog going to that 20 spot? I think uh, DraftKings was 20 rounds last year, right? But yeah. underdog added the two spots this year. How have you seen the, that alter the way people are drafting this year? Yeah. I think primarily people uh, are going with safer and saying, Hey, I'm going to go three quarterbacks. I'm going to go three tight ends. Whether or not that's right or wrong. I'm not hundred percent sure. Uh, personally, I lean towards three QBs is definitely the right play. Uh, Hayden Winks from Underdog showed some great data on why that was. And I think intuitively it makes sense. It's the highest scoring position. It makes sense that, hey, uh, even if you have a stud early on, uh, there's still value to kind of get in those spike weeks from your QBs because when you do get a spike week, it hits. For me, I think the people who are going with three tight end just to have three tight end is probably in the wrong spot there. Uh, and the reason why is because if you're drafting a the number 26, 27th QB, he can still have spike weeks, and those spike weeks are still probably 25-plus points. If you're drafting the 26, 27th tight end on the board, unless you're getting that crazy breakout season, the Dalton Schultz um, for last year, the Darren Waller from a few years before, like unless you're, get, unless you're attacking like a breakout profile tight end, you're not going to get spike weeks because if you're getting that Austin Hooper at the end and his spike week is 50 yards and a touchdown, well, okay, so 50 yards, five catches, you're at seven and a half, touchdown is now putting a six, you're at what, 12 and 13 and a half. That's still only 13 and a half points for if you had a bad tight end week, you were probably still getting seven. So your gain in that spike week is six points. But when we we're talking quarterback, I'm willing to take that spike week because it's now 25 versus maybe a bad week with substantially fewer or a bye week or something. And so that's where I try to think about like, you know, where should I be taking my chances? And I'm really, really focusing on using the extra roster spots for the breakout candidates that can have the Omron St. Brown end of last season or something, rather than just the ones who are going to plug in and give me a few extra points each week.
Yeah, I like that point about not just trying to get three tight ends for the sake of having three tight ends, but thinking about where that's coming from and exactly who you're considering, especially now that we're actually getting landing spots for some of these guys and seeing who the league doesn't care about in, in the early days of free agency. There has been some debate on diversifying player portfolios. And I mean, first of all, Twitter debates are usually silly to some degree and often to a large degree because they're usually fractured argument. It's funny to me when people try to attack a strategy that is clearly trying to be different from the way most people are drafting and talking about how it doesn't work and not realizing that the fact that you're arguing against it is kind of why it works. Because if everybody adapted zero RB, it's not going to be an effective strategy. So I guess, first of all, how do you look at these Twitter debates? Are, are any of them valuable? Do you get, find yourself getting caught up in them? Do I find myself getting caught up in them? I definitely read them. Uh, occasionally I'll pop in. Uh, usually I'll pop in if it's people that I know that like know that if I disagree, like are not getting offended and like you know, people that are either online or real friends with. So I don't have a problem there. Mm -hmm. Are they valuable? I think just a lot for a lot of people who are, you know, passive Twitter users, maybe not as, you know, trying to learn their game of best ball. I think they are just good discussions. You're not going to get like, hey, this is the definitive response or answer to any of these, but it helps you just kind of think through considerations because a lot of people might think like, hey, you know, I wasn't actually thinking about should I be diversifying my ownership? I shouldn't wasn't thinking about should I be diversifying my roster constructions? The conversations maybe at least just like start that internal monologue for you. For me personally, I think diversification makes complete sense. We, we can get into the more details, but I think there's different ways to use it and different reasons you should be using different kinds of diversification. Yeah. So you say I diversify because I have an edge in other areas. Where are your particular edges? Yeah. Um, and I mean, this has obviously changed over the years, um, mm -hmm. but I think like, okay, so, and yeah, the conversation that Eric and I were having and kind of what I was trying to get at is I believe that there is still substantial edge from drafts if you just follow like the basics. Similar to if you were to say, hey, if you go play ABC poker, like you can still be a cash profitable grinder playing one, two, no limit or whatever, just for fun and casual. The reason why is because there's enough people who are there for purely entertainment that are not taking the level of you know preparation process improvement that you are and you're just going to be able to capitalize on that and so i would say on average and you know as a result of this conversation i kind of looked through my previous drafts i think around three drafts three drafters every draft i'm in are pretty much complete dead and you're talking now that's okay you've got 25 percent edge just because you are not making the dumb mistakes and the dumb mistakes i'm talking about are like you know just poor poor roster construction completely reaching for ADP, auto-drafting, like things like that. So now you accept you've got edge on three out of the 12 in the draft. How do you now continue to get edge? Well, that's where I think now you start breaking down. and like, okay, so you got the basic, the roster construction, your lineup telling a story. They're zigging while others are zagging. And I think like each of those might add 5%, 3%, whatever it is. And like, that's how you kind of keep grinding those edges. But one point that Eric is definitely correct about is all the things that people said they had an edge on you know, and the things that I believe I had a very strong edge on two, three years ago, I may not have nearly as much of an edge now because there is a lot more data and analytics and stuff that are coming out there. Now, how tight that our hive mind is and how many people are actually outside our bubble, I'm not sure, but it's a valid point that like, okay, we need to continue to improve. And so I now like look into this season, I'm like, okay, where is my edge coming from? And I think the two things that I've really been able to highlight, which we touched on a little are risk appetite and kind of range of outcomes of players.
And so I am very willing to take high risks on players. Um, and we saw it with the Brady example. Um, I'm willing to do it with a ton of the rookies right now. And because the range of outcomes of these rookies is phenomenal. We've never seen these players in the NFL. They could very easily turn into, you know, we never see them on the field. They never actually play. And that's perfectly okay. And I'm willing to embrace that. But if we also have the option, like what's more likely? a rookie that's even like the sixth, seventh wide receiver rookie. You can use like um, Sky Moore is the fun one as an example. What's more likely that he breaks out and turns into a PPR, you know, PPR monster in the playoffs of, uh, of the end of the season and he turns into, let's say, like a wide receiver one slash two or someone who's also going to draft around him like a Marvin Jones. Like we know what Marvin Jones is. We know the system he's in. He's never going to have that upside. He's likely going to have a lot higher floor than any rookie wide receiver that's drafted around him. But I'm far more willing to lean into those high risk, high range of outcome opportunities. And so I think that's like an example, like one small example where are some people doing it? Yes, definitely. But because that Marvin Jones still has the same ADP as the rookies around him, there's enough people that aren't that there's still like an edge in that example. And uh, I mean, we'll go back to the super flex, but drafting Marvin Jones, when you only need two wide receivers, you're likely going to have six, seven, eight wide receivers in your team. If you drafted a couple guys early, like what is Marvin Jones really doing for you? And uh, that's where like, I'm specifically looking for whether it's rookies that potentially can come into, you know, scoring in that top two, top three for my team, which is necessary to actually produce. So in this scenario, are you taking Sky Moore or are you taking Marvin Jones? 99% of the time, it'll be Sky Moore. I don't think I have any Marvin Jones. I probably have less than a very, very small percent, if any, on my teams. That's what, that's what I thought. I just wanted to make sure that I yeah. was following the, the logic here. It's interesting to look at that Jacksonville situation in particular because Marvin Jones is falling now that they've signed some guys. Zay Jones has also fallen. Zay Jones has been an interesting example to me because, I, I mean, I guess, first of all, nobody believed in him because it was a, a short stretch and it was maybe one spot where I guess he didn't flash well enough late last season for, for recency bias to push him up because we've seen it happen with other guys, Rashad Penny, for example, who I think we'll get to in a few minutes. But it's been interesting to me that Zay Jones has now signed a multi-year deal where he's getting $10 million a year, and his ADP has fallen from where it was. Uh, Do you look for individual spots like that, players that you start to focus on more once something like that happens in general. And I guess, are you interested in Zay Jones as wide receiver 92 off the board or wherever he is today? Yeah. So I'm looking at my phone right now um, and my exposure and stuff. I'm honestly surprised his ADP was dropping. I did not expect that. He is my, so for pre-draft best ball, he is my fourth own, fourth highest owned wide receiver at 25%. And he was an example for me where, we saw what he was able to do the last kind of six weeks of the season. I think for, I, I don't know. I don't think many people even know like what he was able to do. If we, <laughs> I'm going to pull up his stats real quick as we're talking, but he was highly efficient. He was catching downfield targets and like he was showing like he could compete in this league. So to end the season last year, or his last four games, he went six for nine, 67 yards, six for eight, 50 yards, eight for 10, 125 for eight, 27. Uh, he did not have the touchdowns there. And so, I don't know, like, it's not the sexiest, but it's also, he was getting drafted virtually free in these leagues. And I don't know, I think we saw him actually have some talent. And that's an example where I could see breaking out. I would have figured with this Jacksonville signing and how much they paid him, like, we still have Trevor Lawrence. We've got the new coaching staff. They've shown enough, invest in him. He's a guy that I'll probably continue to be drafting. Just 
didn't realize, yeah, his ADP is 222 in the Superflex right now, which is basically last round. We talk about all the info that's out there right now. I guess it surprises me, even though it shouldn't, that there's still so much bias involved in these. And I, I feel like that's an edge that can be mined still is, you know, recency bias, uh, other whatever other biases are at play here, because there's it doesn't make any sense for Zay Jones to go from free agent to $10 million a year and be drafted later. So he's somebody that I was drafting before. I was kind of figuring I would back off because once he has a team, he's going to climb. But if it's going in the other direction, I'm going to keep taking him as well. We talked a little bit about the diversification. You mentioned the the percent on Zay Jones. Do you have these limits on your level of ownership for individual players that you just don't push past? I wouldn't say I have a limit. But what I do is... and. I'd say it's more so for the main tournaments when they come. So when we get those big ones after the draft and coming to the summer, what I'll do is I'd say every week or two, I'll probably take a look at my ownership and uh, see which players I'm very high on. And uh, from there, I'll do two things. One is I'll kind of dig a little further into that player and understand like, why am I so high on them? Why am I higher than market? And trying to kind of test like, should I actually be? Sometimes I'll be like, okay, And I'll talk to others too, and I'll get their thoughts and try to get the contrarian viewpoint of like, okay, what am I not seeing here? From that process, I will then be like, okay, I'm drafting this player too high. These are the risks that I wasn't accounting for. This is the lack of upside I wasn't accounting for. And I'll probably draft that player less. Or the other is I'll be like, no, I see something different. I have conviction. And, but now what I'll probably do is say, okay, but could I be drafting this player around later? Because I'm still getting a ton of them. Should I now wait and maybe instead of me drafting him in the ninth, and I can likely get him more in the 10th because he's you know, he's always available in the ninth for me and I'm reaching on him probably. So let me wait there. And now I'll see my percentage kind of go down a little there, but the shares of him I do get are now more valuable shares around later. So that's kind of my process with regards. Right now, I've got guys that are 44%. I think I have guys, what, Malik might be like around 40 or so. I don't have as much concern now because I think there's still so little information as well. The contest I'm entering is one of only maybe five, six, seven contests I'll end up doing. So even though my exposure at this point in time right now is really high in this specific contest, it's very possible that at the end of the summer, I don't end up with, I'm not going to end up with a 40% plus exposure to any player. Getting more into the diversification. How do you start your focus on diversifying. You mentioned looking at your percentages now on guys and how it's going to spread out over the different tournaments that you play. For right now, how are you looking at it? How do you do it in an individual draft? Like, are you spreading it more around early round players and then condensing more as you get further into the draft? I guess just take me inside um, how you diversify. So first off, there's two core concepts of diversification that I think are important for best ball. One is in your actual players and two is kind of in your roster construction. You can even say in your strategy overall, but we'll focus on those two for the roster construction. One, I think it's, you've just got to go into the drafts and think about, okay, which roster construction am I comfortable with? Which roster construction do I think gives me the most edge for me personally? I focus really on two different roster constructions. One is kind of the more hyper fragile, which is have let's exclude Superflex, but more traditional, Either I'm focusing on a hyper-fragile where I'm probably drafting two, three running backs fairly early and then virtually none the rest of the draft, or the other is I'm going with a zero RB. I honestly prefer those two extremes of this. And uh, in general, I like the top guys at each position 
have the biggest ability, have the greatest ability to really separate from the field. And so I want to get as many shots as possible at the ones who can really finish RB, wide receiver one, tight end one, whatever it is, not QB one, to be honest. Um, but like finish at the top because that gap is so great. For me to do that, I'm usually investing, okay, so there's assets at the top, and then it's going to leave me a weakness at some position. And so that's where I'm willing to go with a level of depth to make up for it. Mm-hmm. And so it's usually that depth is either at running back or wide receiver. If I go hyper fragile early and I invest in those trying to hit on the elite running backs, only grabbing two or three of the elites, I'm willing to say, okay, my depth at wide receiver and just hope that one or two of those late wide receivers end up hitting. And when you go the other way with a zero RB, it's the same idea. I'm trying to hit on the number one wide receiver and a very strong two or three early in the draft. And I'm hoping that my volume, uh, my quantity combined with maybe hitting one or two running backs makes up for that spot then. But to the diversification, which is really where it started, how should people really be thinking about it? I think, yeah. So with the roster construction, kind of just start thinking about what you want there and let the draft play out for how you diversify. Like you obviously shouldn't go zero RB if you have the one overall. If you are end of the draft, um, you have options, but it depends on the year and such. So let the draft come to you and then naturally get that. And I think you then maybe after however many drafts, start getting a feel for which roster constructions you feel better at, which ones you want to kind of work in, maybe force that a little and go from there. Mm -hmm. From a player-wise, it's really hard to do anything there unless you've actually started doing 10, 15, at least that many drafts. And then you're going on percentages and just really focus on your outliers. Uh, Focus on the ones that you have at the very top and go through that process and ask yourself, why are you there? Are you drafting them maybe a little early and consider there? And I think as you make your rankings, you'll start getting a little sneak peek into where you might be eventually overweight on someone, just where, where you have them versus ADP and expect that like, hey, Overall, the drafts are fairly efficient. You don't have people that are reaching too high, at least not an underdog or this part of the year. So if you have someone substantially higher than AP, you're going to end up higher than them. That's probably a good way to kind of forecast out where you may want to diversify or start assessing um, why you have that player where you do. What level of entry volume do you think is, uh, I don't want to say a mistake, you know, kind of a mistake, but obviously it depends on what you're looking for from one of these tournaments. What level of entry volume is a mistake to be playing the tournament if you're, you know, really looking to make money or going to be hurting if you don't? I don't know. That's a tough question because I really don't, I really don't think there's a wrong amount. Um, There's so many sites now. There's so many different contests that I don't think there's anything wrong with if you just want to throw a couple in because you want to have a chance at that and make it fun. And like, you're still hoping to make money. I think it's less about how many entries you're committing and more about how much time are you putting into your process? Because if you are trying to make this a profitable endeavor, like you should probably obviously invest your time in the preparation. The other is I would hesitate to encourage anyone to really be playing best ball purely because they want to make money off of it. Uh, the amount of time that you put into it from an actual drafting, the ROI, the amount of time that your money is held, like it's just not a great investment or like, a, you know, uh, it's not really an, a great reason to be drafting best ball. Uh, I do it because I enjoy it. It's fun. I do it also because it really helps prepare me for the season throughout like DFS and things like that. And especially like being able to track and see and how these kind of, you know, shift. Uh, and yet it is also great to have a chance at winning that million up top, the 200 K up top, whatever it is. And like, that's a, you know, a nice carrot, but I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't really be a proponent of someone who is, joining just because they want to squeak out a, you know, an ROI. 
so, you know, you mentioned getting ready for the season, the DFS in particular, but uh, how much of this can carry over to our regular redraft, you know, follow it through the season leagues. And I, I guess also how much is it different? Do you, how, what do you get out of your best ball drafting that you carry over to leagues that you follow throughout the season? Yeah, I think it's huge. So if you're just considering generic redraft, uh, I think getting an idea of where players are going, getting an idea of where others are higher on players, or in your case, where you're higher than you know average on players. So many people, like they leave a draft room if they're only doing one or two drafts a year and just being like, oh, I didn't expect this to happen. Or like, oh, I really wanted that player, but blah, blah. But like you have the opportunity to literally do 10, 20, 100 drafts ahead of time and obviously your 101st is going to be so much more natural and you're going to feel the flow and you're going to know what's going on than if you're only doing one or two drafts. So no question there. For me, for DFS, I think there's a really interesting way to how to really be contrarian in those first couple of weeks and how to have increased familiarity with like what's going to be contrarian because you've already seen the general public and what they think about players and where you are also like considering from an upside perspective um, in, in those first couple of weeks. So that's where I would say like a... Me just having familiarity of the actual players, but also more importantly, me having familiarity with where the general consensus is on these players. And yes, I guess you could also just go look at ADP the day before the season starts and get that feel. But if you're not actually in there, if you're not in the actual drafting, I think to really digest it and uh, you know incorporate in your process, you kind of need that. And I think running through the actual drafts will show you some of the spots where things are going to divert from ADP because it's not going to follow that list for sure. So you can know how you might react to those things. It's funny to think of how long we spent. I don't know how long you've been playing fantasy, but it's funny to think of how long we spent doing mock drafts throughout the summer when we could have just been doing these for real drafts and had them actually play out and show us some results at the end of the year. Yeah, 100%. Let's talk about some of those specific players that we use these drafts to get used to. Are there any zero share players for you? You know, zero might not mean that you never draft them, but maybe you do. Right? Are there guys that are just don't touch because of their prices for you? In general, I'm only drafting off price. So someone that might be a zero right now in a couple of weeks ends up being someone that's a target just because they've dropped. Uh, so I, you know, very, very, very few players that I'm just completely out on. And if so, it's... uh usually not. It's some other macro theme. So Calvin Ridley was an example at Calvin's current price, which was, I think he was going like third, fourth. When we think back to a year or two ago, when he was at his peak, he was still getting drafted in like the kind of, I guess, mid second or so mid late second. So in my mind, I thought there was too much risk, obviously had no idea that there was going to be a sports betting aspect. (laughs) But what I did consider is like, okay, he took a break from football because of mental health. At no point did we hear that like, hey, He's doing 100% better, that he's 100% into it. So, like, we still have to bake in that there was this risk. Also, he'd been away from the game for a year. We don't know what he actually looks like from how that impacted his game. And because you were only getting a round discount from where his upside was previously, that was a player that I wasn't drafting. Now, hypothetically, had he have started draft dropping to the fifth, sixth round, I definitely would have been taking him just because I'm getting leverage on the field. And because now I think there's a better upside play of, hey, Obviously, you're getting Calvin Ridley, and if he plays like he did before, you're getting a huge deal. Other than that, I was kind of just looking through like who I was low on and trying to get a feel for them. Uh, so at QB, I'm 1% Dak and 4% Burrow. I kind of like both those players, but I think for Burrow, he's just getting drafted much higher. Um, and you know, it's interesting. 
I think he's getting drafted as if like we project him to see some form, even 80% of what he did those last couple of weeks with the, you know, 300 plus yard, maybe even like 400 plus yards, all the touchdowns. And I still think like that's a team that even though they're going to be a bit more pass heavy as we saw the second half of the season, he doesn't have the running floor that probably necessitates where he's getting drafted. So that's why I've kind of been out on him. The DAC was more of just a systematic kind of thing. Uh, we knew that there's so many question marks with what the receivers and where they was going to play out. We've seen that play out. And I personally just am not as bullish on that offense as I probably was last year or two. And so that's more of just a, hey, I want to invest in major in, in positive offenses. That's one where I just don't, I, I think their market was being valued better than I did. Yeah, before we move on, how much does stacking drive your drafting now that more people are doing it? Are you finding yourself worrying less about stacks? Do you look ahead at who's going to be more stackable through your draft if you... When you're deciding on, say, what quarterback to take or what wide receiver to take in, you know, round three through five, something like that, what, what's your relationship with stacking right now? Yeah, I mean, if more people are stacking, then there's actually added incentive for me to stack because there's a better chance that my wide receiver is going to drop to me because someone else isn't reaching if they're focusing on stacking for their players. Uh, I think stacking is extremely still huge. I think it was Mike Leone did an analysis a year or two ago that said, hey, if you're reaching more than a round to stack, uh, then it's probably costing you more than you're gaining. And uh, I, you know, that makes complete sense based off what he was looking at. I think what that misses out on, though, is, well, the importance of really thriving in week 17. Now week 17, because that's a championship week. That's where if you want to finish the very top, like, hey, if I told you a DFS contest, you know, a lot of people are stacking because stacking is what's successful. Like, you're still going to stack because that's what wins these DFS contests because there's such high correlation between a quarterback and his pass catchers. And so when these prizes are so top heavy for that championship week, I really want to get as much stackable options as possible, assuming I'm not talking about a quarterback that can really do it on the ground with his legs. I think that's the exception here. So still stacking heavily right now, this part of the offseason, it's not as big mine because there's just still so many question marks. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll probably start focusing more on stacking now that we're seeing where people are kind of playing out. Um, but yeah, in general, stacking still very, very huge. And um, doesn't matter how many, how much people talk about it, it still needs to be a core part of your focus. Yeah, it's funny. People get into like a best ball draft room with, you know, notable names and they're like, uh oh, look who I'm drafting against. But I saw somebody, I forget who said it during the NFL playoff drafting it was like, actually, you get in a room with some of these guys, it can be a better room because everybody's looking to get their stacks. You're not really, if it's a tournament, you're not really drafting against those people, you know, as much as you are in a typical fantasy draft, you're all drafting toward the top prize. So it kind of behooves everybody to, you know, not collude, but somewhat work together. Like it, it hurt, it damages both of your teams. If you reach for the receiver, that's going to complete somebody else's QB wide receiver stack. Right. Those playoff contests more than ever. And I actually had a conversation with Nick Rudman from Underdog about this, where you could have six people who are not colluding, but they are just drafting optimally. And at the end of the day, they should all just end up with basically two different teams. And, you know, what we saw for the playoff challenge, like championships, if you're able to get to the finals, having obviously the Rams and the Bengals was going to win you the nuts and Eagles ended up. That's what his team was. He went just full on those two teams. And so, yeah, with the ideas of these drafts, like obviously you're not stacking two complete teams like it would in the playoff challenge, but it's still, it's still definitely important. Yeah. So what level is too much? Like if you have a quarterback and a receiver, are you somewhat interested in a second receiver, somewhat interested in tight end? 
not interested in getting two other pass catchers or does it totally depend on when these players are going? General rule is I want more the merrier. I think an exception was someone was talking about like, what's the unicorn of these drafts? And it's like, okay, so if you were to go, I don't know if it was the, it might've been Burrow, Mixon, Higgins, Chase and such. And, um, or maybe it was someone with the Chiefs and such. But if you're taking, now you have to like spend the top four round picks to get those players. I think that's where, okay, maybe we're over expanding, expanding because you're really missing out on upside from anyone else on another team. And given that final championship week, what's the likelihood of all four guys really going off when more you'd rather have three or guys going off and then the whoever the stud is that you're missing from another team. As the draft gets later, I'm more likely to focus on stacking as well because that's more of a kind of rising tide lifts all ships. And you, you know, let's think, okay, Kendrick Bourne, if I have Mac Davis and like I'm thinking like, okay, I want, you know, I think he's going to have a great season. I think he's going to have even, you know, expand upon his success last year. Kendrick Bourne's probably going to be an element of that. And the difference between the range of outcomes for Kendrick Bourne, knowing that his QB is going to have a great year, gives him a major boost. And that's where even if you reached on Kendrick Bourne one round, the thing is, if I tell you Mac Davis is having a great year, well, now you actually, the expectation for Kendrick is he actually probably should have got for even a, a round before. And so that's where I think like, as long as it's pass catchers, I am more willing to just kind of stack up. I'd say I've had stacks that have three, four pass catchers, and I have no problem with that because I'm just making a bet that that team is going to have a great season kind of in the air through that QB and then hope that I hit the right pieces uh, during that playoffs week. Right. And certainly going round 15 instead of round 16 to get Kendrick Bourne with Mac Jones, as opposed to reaching from round five to round seven, a lot different, uh, a lot different value picture there. So getting back to some of those individual players, who were some uh, running backs on that list of, of, I guess, overvalued at this point? Two of my other one percenters are Chubb and Penny. I think those have similar themes. Great runners explosive runners probably like uh, you know penny in those couple games we saw was probably one of the highest chances of any running back to really break a 50 yard plus pay chubb is still considered to be kind of one of the most uh you know the top like core runners but they're not they're not catching passes and they both have larger offensive risk for like that you know what team they're on and what team he might be on with penny but if he went to care went back to uh seattle and so those guys, like, I just don't see the upside and I see a bit more risk. Um, and if I'm drafting for Chubb, if I'm trying to get someone who is a round two, round three running back, I want a chance that he can be like the number one RB. Penny, I don't know. <laughs> we, we can get into Penny, but it's, I, I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting case where people saw what happened last year. It was very loud. He has that upside, but he has so many risks just attached to him. I'm in the same place with you on Penny. I've forced it a couple times just in case something happens with him. I don't want to be totally out, but there's so much more negative than positive to him. If you just look back, I mean, it's it's classic recency bias to me. You look at the end of last season, and obviously he had a great stretch of games. The matchups were certainly favorable, but he's been in the league four years. And if you want to tell yourself the story that he was hurt and then when he finally got healthy, that's when he took off. That's the mistake. Uh, that's the same reason you drafted Mike Davis uh, too early last year is you're ignoring the negative to focus on the positive because of when it happened. I, I can't get myself to even like Rashad Penny when he's in the same range, you know, not far away from where Clyde Edwards Elaire is going, who already is in a good spot. Miles Sanders is going later. I mean, it, it's so 
easy for me to like Miles Sanders so much more than Rashad Penny. It's been baffling to me that those two have not switched spots throughout draft season. Yeah. And like if Rashad Penny was catching passes uh, in those few games with Seattle where he broke out, I think I'd be a lot more open to the idea of it because then there's a story that, okay, so we have the risks of his age, not so much that he's 26, but that he, as you said, he hasn't broke out, hasn't seen the success before. So that's a risk. We have that he was on Seattle, which is a team that in general ran the slowest amount of plays by a long shot. So like, it's not a great offense to be on. But then, even if he doesn't go to Seattle, he's a free agent. Yep. But then what teams are going to go to? And now we're hoping for the potential. But, like, he may not even be the starter. He may not even be a 1A. If he is a starter, there's likely someone else that is still going to be catching the passes. So his upside is still capped. Um, and, yeah, the other guys that were around him, from Kenneth Walker to Miles Sanders to Tony Pollard, like, those all have such a higher upside possibility um, than what we, you know, and the – likelihood of hitting that top 10% outcome than Penny. It's funny to notice just how strong people's biases can be that you can, you can realize that uh, second contract running backs are bad bets in general. And yet here you are liking this second contract running back who hasn't even gotten that second contract yet, just because uh, of what you recently saw from him. So let's kind of round out the, the players before we move on to, to rookies and such, but yeah, quick, you... quickly go through them. Yeah, um, about wide receiver and tight end. The wide receiver, I mentioned Ridley. Uh, Terry and Gallup were two others and a bit more. Con- Terry was from a systems-wise. Um, you know, just Even though he has some phenomenal talent, we didn't expect them to get a legitimate QB. Uh, and so I think that's just with the risk around that. Gallup that's Terry was, we're talking about, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Gallup was combination of injury. I actually probably mm-hmm. like him a little more after what we've seen now, but I still expect that he was going to be like third fiddle in that offense. Um, but we'll see. Uh, tight ends, two guys that are pretty similar, but Dallas Goddard and Hunter Henry. Uh, I think 1% of both of them. And the reason why is because that's more of the offensive scheme. They're both run first offenses. Uh, You're just not expecting the likelihood of getting breakout seasons where they're catching a thousand yards, I think is very, very slim when both teams want to just run that ball. And from a tight end wise, I want, um, I want chances of catching that kind of top three tight end season. And even though both those have great talent, I don't see it happening in those schemes. So that Dallas Goddard's interesting because I know that there are others who like him as an upside guy. I, I'm kind of in the middle on him. I can see the upside case. I can see the downside case that you're laying out. Are you drafting a lot of Miles Sanders? And I guess were you treating Jalen Hurts? How are you treating Jalen Hurts? Yeah, decent amount of Jalen Hurts. Um, had him a bunch in the more traditional before Superflex uh, because of where he was going and his upside profile. Um, and then Miles Sanders as well. I think Miles Sanders. So I've and he's t- I'm at 22% of Miles Sanders. Uh, I think the combination there is one is he is that pass catching back. They uh, Boston Scott's a free agent, so they're going to lose him. Uh, there is obviously still substantial risk with Miles Sanders that they just don't want him in the goal line. And if he's not getting goal line carries, that hurts a bit. But the upside play is there. The other is after Miles Sanders is a huge drop off on talent from running back. So it's pretty much like you have the tier of about. Pollard, Kareem Hunt, Miles Sanders, maybe even include Isaiah Spiller right after that. And then you start getting into like Alexander Madison and clear backups. Um, and so that's where I've kind of find myself at, oh, I'm at that last, the running back spot. It's not worth me taking a wide receiver where this next wide receiver is going to be very comparable. Let me grab uh, my favorite of that group and Miles Sanders is off in that. 
Do you think that Darren Waller getting Devontae Adams and George Kittle getting a run first quarterback, not maybe not run first, but run heavy quarterback, do you think that helps Dallas Goddard? Because to me, that I don't know, brings the rest of that range of tight end down a little bit and kind of helps the upside on Goddard, especially because there's not that much exciting after him. What would you say your confidence is that the Devontae's trade hurts Waller? I mean, I think it definitely hurts from a target volume standpoint. I guess we'll see on efficiency. I, I'll be curious to see what it does to his draft position because I don't think that I'm, I don't think that I would drop Darren Waller in where I would take him if he stays in the same range. It, it lowers my confidence in him hitting the ceiling from where he's going. Yeah. I think in PPR, I'd be willing to dock him a little more than underdog than half PPR. I agree with you. Like, I think that 160, 170 target season is a little less likely now. But two years ago, we loved him because he was literally averaging 10 plus targets a game, converting what probably 70, 80% of those into catches. We probably do lose that. But I feel a lot better about that offense now. And it really shows an investment in that they're trying to actually compete against this absolutely stacked division. There's going to be some crazy shootouts. So I don't know. I've been going back and forth the last like 24 hours on how I think it impacts Waller. I agree. Slight nudge down, but um, I'm going to buy that dip. I I would say at tight end, I've had a hard time having strong feelings about anybody overall. Like I'll look at the market for them. I'll take some guys. I'll not take some other guys, but it's hard for me to say, I hate that guy where he's going. I love this guy where he's going. Is that, is that your feeling on tight ends where you're not loving and hating as much as other positions? Every single tight end has a major question mark (laughs) Um, and relative where they're drafting. Like, Kelsey, even his age, has to be a question mark. Right. Kyle Pitts with potentially a new quarterback. Like, who knows what's happening there? Mark Andrews cannot sustain the level of touchdowns and efficiency and yards that he was getting in a team that wants to run first. Keep going. Darren Waller, his situation. George Kittle with a new quarterback that wants to run. Like, and you know that he preferred Jimmy Garoppolo over Trey Lance from like some of his comments. Like, you go all the way. I mean, Hawkinson, like that. Like, there's no great tight ends that I love. I still am. I think part of the reason why I drafted a bunch of Waller is because he's got a discount compared to those other top tier ones. And we know mm-hmm. that upside is still there. But other than that, yeah, I've been just getting a bunch of the Tyler Higby, Logan Thomas, which are going 140, 150 ADP. And those just feel fine to me. Logan Thomas is one of those uh, zero for me just because he tore his ACL so late in the year. I, I got I got to see it before I'm, I'm buying in, especially because to me, the ceiling's like tight end 10 this season mm-hmm. for him. So I'm not, I'm not worried about missing out on something special. Yeah. See, I, I think his is, that's the kind of upside that I'm hoping for. And we've seen how much Washington loves to use that tight end spot. Like we were even doing, uh, you know, fill-ins when you had a backup third tight end and DFS there. Cause we know that they just like, it's a, it's a system where they'll continue to use it. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think a healthy Logan Thomas could be a top five tight end season. Ooh. All right. I guess we'll see where that goes. Let's switch to the rookies before I let you out of here. Um, a good time to be drafting rookies in best ball, right? Because they're just collectively going to move up once they have NFL teams. Yeah, and I think it, it fits the perfect profile of the risk reward. I think also we've seen more than ever the level of hive mind that has come from the current people who are drafting uh, rookies. 99% of us don't know that much about them. Maybe we have strong opinions on one or two, but we're likely just, you know, reading and learning from regurgitated information from others and you get hive mind around these rookies and so i think there's an opportunity to zig zig when others are zagging in this spot 
Uh, but overall, I've just accepted that. Like, I don't know that much about them. I use basically the mock drafts compilation to get an idea of draft capital, because I think that's probably most important for most of these positions. And from there, just say, hey, I'm trying to load up on wide receivers. I've been trying to load up on wide receiver rookies because I think, hey, if you can hit that upside, it's fantastic. I've been down on running back rookies because I think outside of like Brees Hall, it's just not that great of a class. And I think we're kind of overvaluing, hoping that we hit. But uh, overall, like I think it's just a, hey, lean into the lack of clarity. Yeah. And a good place to to spread around the ownership because none of us, even the even the folks who know the most, don't know a whole lot about these guys because the NFL shows us every year that they don't know a ton about these guys until like, they hit the league. I saw you mention Jamison Williams in particular as somebody that you want. Tell me what you like. We all know he's a good player. So tell me what you like about him as a best ball pick right now in particular, so, you know, especially considering he's coming off the knee injury. It applies more generally, but I think highly specific to the super flex format where you only need to start two wide receivers. And so he's going around pick like 144, 145 or something like that. And uh, when I'm looking at wide receivers in that range, I want wide receivers that have a chance to be, you know, one of my top two on any week. And uh, that's where we know that like, hey, if he stayed healthy, he'd be arguably the number one wide receiver in the draft, probably moves up to top two, three. Like there's a little fluidity up there. I've even seen some projections like he's still like projected to go fourth off the board with this injury. And I'm I'm drafting for the championships. I'm drafting for those playoffs where he will be healthy. And there's a nice little aspect to, well, he's likely getting it drafted in the back half of the first round, which means he's getting drafted on a better team, which means that like better quarterback may he may be that like league winner for the playoffs because the value you're getting um and we're willing to take in that hey yes he probably doesn't play for the first four six weeks maybe even there's a time to ramp up and everything but come playoffs that's when i want him on my teams is he somebody that you'd be less interested in a full season format you know one that doesn't have that the the one and done playoff thing at the end it's just uh, counting all of your points for the year Oh, 100%. Right. Because now you've got to bake into account that you're likely getting a dud. And so not comparable player, I guess, maybe a little comparable, actually. But at the ADP is Will Fuller. And mm-hmm. Will Fuller has substantial upside as well. We also know his risk. His risk is a little different with the injury aspects. But if I'm going in a full season, not uh, a full season one where every week counts, I'd probably be more willing to invest in Will Fuller because uh, you're not getting those guaranteed zeros or that ramp up time from the beginning of the year. Is there any player valuation trend that you've seen that year to year, I guess, that, that people are continuing to make? We've talked about, you know, a couple of different things along the way. So maybe it's one of those or maybe there's something different. Is there just like a general thing that, that people are, are getting wrong and it's leading to value staying on the board? Honestly, I think each year people adapt and things change. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of years back, I'd say two, three years back, we were like, no, no, we should not be taking free agent wide receivers they never perform well. Then you had that year where the top like three was Stefan Diggs, it was maybe Hopkins, went to new teams and like absolutely thrived. And then last year we had again, like just about every team, every wide receiver that went to a new team, absolutely some. And uh, I think they're, I think my, I have no idea if this is right, but my kind of intuition, the way that I see it is like, okay, so if it's an elite wide receiver going to a new team and he's going to be the focal point, like I can see that working out. And like, there is some, anecdotal evidence for the Stefan Diggs and the DeAndre Hopkins. So maybe that works for Devante, but then your peripheral ones that are not the focal part, it takes them longer to actually get into a new offense. There's more variance. They're less likely to work out. Like, I don't know. That's the way I kind of conceptually think about it, but 
No idea if that's accurate. No, and, and it seems like the larger hive like will just shift and flow each time. And so maybe I try to like say like, hey, here's what I believe. I see that instead right now, everyone's taking extreme view and thinking like, okay, the top wide receiver, the new wide receivers aren't going to succeed. So you can buy the dip, but I wouldn't say there's like a tried and true year over year trend for anything. And I love, it's honestly impressed me how much the field is willing to disregard previous years um, and kind of for better or for worse, go into like new thoughts, new processes. Yeah, it used to be we could count on certain guys being overrated. I think that's been less the case year to year at this point. But, you know, there are still two key things at play, and Stefan Diggs is a good example. You know, one is factoring in what could happen and not just what you think will happen. I know for a lot of us who do this projecting, you know, for a living or for a hobby or whatever it is, it's tough to get away from what I think will happen, but you have to because we don't know everything that's going to happen. So with Stefan Diggs, obviously the big change is Buffalo started throwing the ball a lot more all of a sudden after getting him, which after the fact makes sense. But a lot of us didn't like Stefan Diggs as much because he was going to run heavy Buffalo. And then the other thing At that time, is, people didn't like Josh Allen. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that was the perfect storm. It was like uh, Josh Allen was all of a sudden a really good thrower. Uh, all of a sudden Buffalo threw the ball, all of a sudden they had a number one wide receiver. So, and then the, the, the final pieces of that was Stefan Diggs, I think was going in round five in ADP at that point. So you weren't investing an early round two pick to take a shot on Stefan Diggs paying off. So, you know, even though we are all getting sharper at drafting and you can't count on the same mistakes that we used to see, there is still some spots that you can pay a little bit more attention to and find value to other people. Other people might be missing. Yep. I think an interesting litmus test this year is going to be Allen Robinson because he probably has one of the widest range of outcomes for um, a free agent wide receiver where going into a system where if he ends up being a focal part, if Cooper cup was to get hurt or something, he could be a top five wide receiver or he goes into that system and it's already established and you already have so many other mouths to feed. And we have no idea what happens with woods or Beckham or such. And he ends up just, you know, having a couple of spikes weeks, but for the most part is only catching three, four passes a week. And that's just the best for their offense. Like I have no idea. That's going to be a very interesting one. Uh, I think I tweeted out, like, I think his ADP is going to get steamed because people are going to be attracted to the upside and think old Allen Robinson and now in better offense, put those two together. And like, he's going to be great. If that's the case, I'm probably out on him. Uh, if his ADP ends up getting into that like fourth round, fifth round area, I mean, where, where do we think? I don't know. I haven't thought about this, but where do we think his ADP is actually going to settle? Fifth it's round? a tough spot because obviously he lands on a good offense, but he currently also resides with Cooper Cup and Robert Woods. Van Jefferson, nobody likes, but he's still there. So, I mean, it, it's also easy to make the case that he didn't land in a great spot because of opportunity. I don't know. I, I haven't done a live draft since he signed to know where he went specifically. It's tough for me to imagine he makes a big leap until and unless Robert Woods gets traded away. Yeah. So he was 88 in the non super flex, um, which would be early seventh round. You got to imagine. I mean, like there wasn't much of a better landing spot for him just from a upside. I, I think late fifth, I think fifth probably makes sense about it. Um, I think I'd probably take him this current spot, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. It, it'll be interesting because if that's a case where if you're able to draft him, where his upside is not really being baked in, uh, I'm willing to take that risk. 
that's one of the best things about how we can draft throughout the year now is I took Allen Robinson when he was, you know, wide receiver 45. Now, if he's wide receiver 30, I'm like, I I don't need him right now. I already got some. So it's a great time to be alive, Justin. (laughs) He is a proven best ball warrior. You can find his stuff at Establish the Run. Justin, anything in particular that people should be looking for from you, either right now or on the horizon? Lots of fun stuff. And so for those don't know, last year, um, we started a company called On The Moment that started building a fantasy sports with digital trading cards, so NFTs. And uh, so we rolled out a playoff best ball style contest last year. That was pretty fun uh, where you open a pack and in your pack, you got like 20 cards that are like teams and positions. Uh, And then from those 20, you pick 12 and that became like your best ball lineup for the playoffs. And uh, so we've got a lot planned and may have some summer best ball as well for this year. But uh, yeah, feel free to reach out, follow me on Twitter. Um, Love to chat with anyone, anything just best ball related. I'd love to have these conversations. Looking forward to connecting with all you. Sounds good. Follow him on Twitter at Justin Herzig. Justin, thanks again for joining me on here. Cheers, Matt. If you are grinding best ball drafts right now, head to DraftSharks.com. You can become a DS Insider. Our 2022 rankings are live. Our unrivaled draft war room is live. We're basically just waiting there to help you win. Even if you're not a DS Insider yet, you can check out our free Dynasty Prospect Scouting Report series. We are nine players into this year's rookie class. More coming basically every day up until the NFL draft, so check that out. For my guest, Justin Herzig, and the entire DraftSharks crew, I'm Matt Schaaf saying thanks so much for some of your